spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. And for our Old Testament reading, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19, and I will read verses 18 through 24. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth, and it was told to Saul Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came to the great well that is in Secu, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Today is going to be fun. You know you're having a revival if Joe Biden shows up and takes off all his clothes and begins prophesying. That's the message today. All right. So let's pray and uh, then we'll get into this story. So Father, we, uh, we give thanks to you that you've given us stories. Um, you, you've given us commands, you've given us poetry, you've given us proverbial wisdom, you've given us um, weird visions of the future, but you've also given us incredibly strange, sometimes humorous stories. Um, and God, as is true with all of your scriptures, I pray that we would hear those stories and we would obey those stories. And even that phrase sounds strange. How do we obey stories? But Lord, I pray that we would hear, that we'd be transformed, that we would believe, and that we'd live in the light of the realities that you seek to teach us. Cause your word to bear fruit among us today. In your name we pray, amen. Today we get to do um, uh, an interesting thing. The, 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 the 
One of the precious gifts that's given to us in the book of Samuel um, is that we uh, get to hear the stories of David and we have the Psalter. And in the Psalter, we have the prayers of David. Um, And oftentimes you can see where they line up. And when you can see when they line up, um, you get a particular gift in that moment. Um, Because if all we had were the stories, and those are precious, um, the stories tell us how to interpret the world. They tell us something about um, how the world is, how God works in the midst of the world. um, And that is glorious when we get that. But when you add the element of, uh, as we'll get today with Psalm 59, um, when you add the element of actually getting to listen in on the prayers of David um, as these things are unfolding, um, you, you, you have uh, not only a story, um, but a God-ordained perfect reflection on what are the kinds of things that you should ask for in the midst of a situation like this. Um, how should you view what's happening? How, what should, should you feel about what's happening around you? And then what should you seek and ask from the hand of God as those things are unfolding around you? Now, th- this is strange in our day. Um, we live in a day that prioritizes above everything else how you and I feel. And so the fact that the Bible everywhere commands us to feel something And not just anything, but actually to feel particular things, to desire particular things, to feel joy, to feel sorrow, to mourn, to be grateful. It commands not only how we're to act, what we're to say and and, and do in particular situations, it actually commands us, hey, here's the kind of thing that you um, are commanded by God to desire. Here's the kind of thing that you're commanded by God to fear and to tremble before. Here's the kind of thing given to you by God um, in which you should rejoice. And this is, um, it's offensive to kind of our, our modern sensibilities. And yet we come to a story like what happens in chapter 19 um, of 1 Samuel. And as we're going to look at later in um, Psalm 59, God has given us not just a record of David's prayers, um, but in light of this kind of thing happening, we learn from David how it is that we ought to pray in similar circumstances. We learn what we should desire in similar circumstances. We learn what we should plead with God to do on our behalf in similar circumstances. And, and so we come to the scriptures and we not only learn stories about the world, we not only learn crazy stories um, about a king ending up naked prophesying before a bunch of prophets. Um, can we just laugh a little bit? I mean, it's okay. Like that's a really weird story. And we're finally there at this weird story in this juncture. It's okay. Um, but right alongside all of those things, um, we actually learn how it is that we're to feel. Which, by the way, means the, the, the feelings that you have in, in response to the things around you are, are not nearly as important as you think they are. They don't determine reality. God determines reality. God defines what the world is, and he even gets to define what you are ought to feel in a particular set of circumstances. 
Um, This is, again, this flies in the face of our entire way of engaging the world. Um, In fact, a lot of us have grown up around the Psalms learning that, hey, um, when you feel sad, you should go and find a Psalm that's sad and use the Psalm to express your feelings to God. That's the wrong way. In fact, it's the exact opposite way to use the Psalms. The Psalms are there to instruct our emotions, to shape our emotions, to instruct us on how we're to engage with God and what we're supposed to feel in different kinds of circumstances. You see, just as our actions and our thinking has been disordered from sin, so has our heart. So has what we love. So has how we feel in particular kinds of circumstances and situations. And so today we get a really, really wild story. And we get a wild story and we get the added benefit of listening in to David, um, to his prayer, and that God has ordained that that prayer would be given to us in the Psalter so that we learn the kinds of things that we're to ask for in this situation. So what is this situation? Here's how we're going to look at this. First, um, I, I want to outline for you this story, the, the, the whole of chapter 19 and what unfolds for David uh, with Saul and his relationship to Saul. Um, and then I want to look more closely at a handful of details that are given to us in this story um, that tell us something about what God is actually up to in these events. Um, and first, looking at Saul, and then second, looking at David. And that's where we're going to go to Psalm 59. And then after that, I want to draw out some implications for us, and then we'll be done. So first, the story. So you'll remember last week we had um, a lot of political intrigue. Um, Saul's hostility to David is not out in the open yet. It, it's, um, it's, it's absolutely there, um, but it's, it's, it's happening in kind of conniving sort of ways. And so you have Saul losing his mind and yes, trying to throw a spear at David. You might say, well, that's pretty out in the open. Um, but immediately afterwards, he, he's trying to marry off his daughters to, to, to David. Um, he, he's, uh, he's, his, his son loves, has, has established a covenant with David. Um, so, so you have a lot of, uh, on the surface, kind of mixed messages. Maybe Saul just went crazy that day. Um, David was playing, <laughs> um, playing music for Saul um, in Saul's chambers, um, and Saul lost his mind. Everyone knew Saul was a little bit crazy, and he threw a spear at him. Uh, but clearly there's not conflict. At least that's what it's going to look like on the surface in chapter 18. In chapter 19, that all changes. Um, Saul is no longer uh, kind of going behind David's back, trying to set up kind of um, the political chessboard um, for, for David's fall, that David might be killed by the Philistines, um, or uh, maybe if he can kind of um, create this relationship with his daughter, that, that will then lead to David's downfall. No, in chapter 19, um, Saul gets every, the, the chapter opens with Saul getting everybody together in his court, um, all of his leaders together, and says, we're going to kill David. And so a plan begins to unfold about how Saul intends to kill David. The envy has gotten all the way down into his bones now. And it's gotten so far into Saul's view of David and Saul's view of his understanding of the kingdom um, and his own anxiety and his own place within Israel and before God um, that he, he doesn't even, he's not even trying to hide it anymore. He doesn't care. David has to die. So 
Saul gets together with his closest advisors. He gets together with his son, his son and all of his servants and commands them that they should all kill David. Now we have three, three ways in which David is rescued in the midst of this situation um, that are laid out for us in a very intentional way in this text. First, you have Jonathan. Jonathan goes to his father, um, his, his envious, angry, half-crazy father, and he speaks to him very, very reasonably. He speaks to him very winsomely. He speaks to him about the nature of Saul's sin, um, and he tells him, look, don't, don't do this. Don't sin against David. Um, don't, you know, don't you remember what David did? David took his own life in his hand, and he fought Goliath on your behalf. Um, he's gone to war on your behalf. Um, he's fought your enemies on your behalf. He's been nothing but faithful and valiant. And so the first attempt, the first means to, 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 by which um, uh, God puts in place uh, a means by which David will be saved is Jonathan goes and speaks winsomely, reasonably, carefully, biblically to Saul. And the response at first is good. Saul says, I swear an oath, no one will put him to death. We're, we're not gonna kill him, deal's off. Everybody stop trying to figure out how to kill David. Um, Jonathan is kind of, spoken some sense into my mind um, and we're not gonna kill him. Um, that goes well for just a second until David goes to war again against Saul's enemies, defeats Saul's enemies, faithfully defeats Saul's enemies, the Philistines, God's enemies. Remember, this is who you're supposed to fight. If you belong to the people of God, you're always fighting Philistines, even today. So Saul, then after David having this great victory, Saul then decides, we've got to kill him again. This is actually a pattern. Um, the only reward that David gets for all of his faithfulness is a, an evil man who wants to kill him. I, I want you to catch that. The only thing that David gets for all of his faithfulness is an evil man wants to kill him. We'll come back to that in a minute. So now Saul, in response to David fighting this glorious and faithful victory, again takes a spear in his hand and tries to pin David against a wall. But David escapes. So first, Jonathan convinces his dad not to kill him. His dad decides to kill him again, throws a spear at him. David runs away, gets away, isn't hit by the spear. He's fleet afoot, and he goes home. But as he goes home to his wife, um, there, even there, Saul has sent um, messengers to get him and to kill him. So he goes home, and now Michael... Remember, Saul's daughter um, recognizes what's going on. She knows what's happening. Her dad sent spies. They're waiting uh, right around the corner. Um, David comes home and she says, look, uh, you need to escape. So she lowers him out of a window. He gets away. 
Um, she takes her uh, household idols, which is again a, a kind of indication to us um, of at least the nature of Saul's household. His daughter has come into this marriage with household idols. She puts them in the bed, covers them with goat's hair so it looks like David's in bed. And then Saul finally says to his messengers, go up and get him um, and uh, get him out of the bed and bring him to me. I'm going to kill him with my own bare hands. So the messengers go, they find the idols and Saul takes it out on his daughter who wisely blames David for the whole scenario. So we have Jonathan, the son of Saul, reasonably trying to argue with Saul, trying to speak just reasonable thoughts about justice and about the, I'm not sinning against God and not sinning against David. Tries to convince Saul not to kill David. Gets him a short moment of reprieve. Then um, David escapes on his own feet, fleeing um, when Saul throws a spear at him. Then Saul's daughter um, deceives her own father, deceives these messengers, redemptively deceives so, so that David would be saved, so that David could get away. And then last, the weird story. <laughs> David goes and finds Samuel, tells him everything has happened, and they go to Ramah. And Ramah's important. We've been to Ramah before in this book. They go to Ramah, and they decide to have a little prophecy party. And so there's a whole bunch of prophets. They all come together. This is kind of, guess what they did back then? Prophets just get together and decide to start prophesying. Not sure if that would be that fun of a party, but maybe it would be awesome. So anyway, they get together. They're prophesying. Saul gets word. David is with Samuel, um, the prophet, and uh, he's in Ramah. And so he sends a messenger to get him. The messenger gets there. The spirit of God falls upon him and he starts prophesying. <laughs> so then Saul hears this happens and says, you know what? We're going to take a second messenger and we're going to send it. So then Saul takes a second messenger and sends him. And you would think after this happens, Saul would start to figure some things out. But he doesn't. Second messenger goes, Spirit of God falls on the second messenger, the second messenger begins to prophesy. <laughs> so then Saul says, you know what? Didn't work first time, didn't work the second time, third time though. This is gonna be it. This is gonna, this is gonna happen. Finds the third messenger, sends him to Samuel, to Ramah. Spirit of God falls on the third messenger. Third messenger begins to prophesy. And Saul says, you know what? First three times didn't work. I'm going to go and take care of this thing. So then Saul goes to, goes to a well. He arrives at the well asking for Samuel and for David, finds out where he is, goes there. But on his way, the Spirit of God comes. He begins to prophesy. Important to note, it doesn't say he began to false prophesy. So he actually began to prophesy, speaking Spirit-empowered, true words about God. And he goes, comes before Samuel and this school of prophets, this prophetic party, and he falls down, continues to prophesy, and all of his clothes come off. And that's the story. And you may be wondering, as I was, 
What on earth could you do with that story? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) First, what is God doing with Saul? I want to begin by making just a side observation. Um, Somebody else pointed it out this week as I was reading commentaries. And it struck me in in our day and age, like, we believe, the Bible actually teaches this, that God establishes the magistrate, the government, with the authority or the power of the sword. What a terrifying thing when the men or the women who wield that authority in our culture do not fear God. Saul has been given authority by God. He was anointed by God. He was declared king by God. He has authority. He has the sword to bear. And he doesn't fear God. And it's in insanity to me that we live in a day and age in which Christians will say it doesn't really matter if government officials fear God or not. Oh, it desperately matters. Why would you not want the people who have been given authority by God to bear the sword to not tremble before God? It seems to me that would be the most important element. Because what unfolds in this chapter, in fact, what's going to continue to unfold in the coming chapters is the picture of a man who's been given enormous authority by God, enormous power by God to to wield armies, to wield soldiers, to wield a spear and sword and planning um, to execute um, his judgments um, that are supposed to, to, to be reflections of the very justice of God, the judgments of God upon the earth. But this man does not fear God. This man loves himself. This man worships himself. This man is controlled by envy and, insan- and an ever-increasing God-endowed um, insanity. And he still has that authority. It matters. In fact, it matters in every arena where God gives authority. Husbands and fathers, as you wield authority in your home, do you tremble before God? Do you recognize that every single bit of authority you have, all of it, is given to you by God and is answerable to God? It's not simply to fulfill your whims, it's not simply to fulfill your pleasures, your desires. It is given to you by God and for God. Business owners, you've been given, according to scripture, real authority. Do you understand that all of that authority should lead you to tremble before God? As you and I think about politics, 
do you want, maybe more than anything else, to, to know that those who lead this country tremble before God, before they vote, before they give a speech, before they order troops somewhere? That at the bare minimum, they know that they will give an account to God for every decision that they make. It matters. It really, really matters. And and then when you look at Saul, what you see is something that should terrify all of us. It's actually come up several times so far already in the book of 1 Samuel. Since God um, has begun to judge Saul for his three sins. Remember his three, three sins? He sinned against his son. He sinned against the people, and he sinned against God. Um, he, he did not obey God. He did not receive his authority and live under the authority of God himself. And so God has um, brought his judgment against Saul with the result. Do you remember the, the, the wording of the text? An evil spirit, a dark spirit from the Lord. Does that bother you? Does that terrify you? Because what you see right here is a man who's utterly bent in on himself. Who's been sent anxiety. Who's been sent fear. Who's been sent um, uh, a kind of presence of God or work of God that's not there to redeem but to drive him mad. This is very much like what you see in Romans 1 as it describes the nature of God's judgment. God's judgment is not you did X wrong, therefore God kind of gives you this nice redemptive spanking um, uh, and, and it's kind of like a punishment over here. No, the judgment of God in Romans 1, it says, and he handed them over. And the things that he hands them over to are things that are um, self-destructive, are are, are corrosive to their very humanity, um, are are things that are described as deserving of death and actually are described as a living death. See, the nature of the judgment of God is to hand people over to their own insanity, their own stinking and festering wounds that they love more than they love forgiveness, more than they love grace. Saul's life from several chapters ago through this chapter on into the next several chapters is simply a picture, um, a terrifying picture of that playing itself out. If you're here and you don't know Christ, You don't know Jesus. Maybe you have all kinds of questions about the nature of Christianity. Um, One, I'm I'm really, really thankful that you're here. But oftentimes, um, particularly in our our secular culture, the way that we think about morality or particularly religious morality um, is that there's some sort of kind of ancient code um, or a code that's placed upon us that's arbitrary, that doesn't have anything to do with real life. Um, it's just kind of a list of do's and don'ts kind of arbitrarily imposed by God or whichever God you happen to choose upon humanity. That's not the way the Bible describes the nature of, of biblical morality or biblical sin or just frankly sin. Sin is the way, um, as the way the Bible describes it, sin is uh, 
it, it, it presupposes that God has designed the world to work a certain way. And when you, um, when you cut with that grain, in other words, when you cut with the, um, the design of God, you obey God, you seek God, you do what God commands, um, you're actually doing a thing that produces life. But when you rebel against it, that, that's the nature of sin. And to rebel against um, the, the, the order by which God has created the world, um, the, the, the order spelled out for us in his law, um, is to pursue a self-destructive spiral of insanity. It unravels your life, it unravels the lives around you, and it will unravel all of society. It's a horrible judgment. So we see in Saul the terror of what a blind, hardened wickedness is. It is its own destructive judgment. And we see that in particular as this unfolds. Chapter 19 is the end of Saul. Oh, he'll, he'll still be around. But chapter 19, God tells a story. A story that it's really important you see. He tells a story. Here's a man who thinks he's in control, who thinks he's managing perceptions, thinks that he's managing to to keep control of his own kingdom, his own authority, his own name, his own renown. And God is actually up to something in the midst of this that is Saul's end. I want you to consider this. When we first meet Saul, in other words, where Saul began, in chapter nine, he comes to Ramah. He goes to Ramah because he's lost um, his father's cattle. Now he comes to Ramah because he's lost David. In chapter nine, coming to Ramah, he first goes to a well and asks where he can find Samuel. And now in chapter 19, he goes to a well in Ramah and asks where he can find Samuel. In chapter 10, he finds himself among a school of prophets begins to prophesy as Samuel promised him he would. And now in chapter 19, everyone Saul sends and finally Saul himself goes among the school of prophets and they all begin to prophesy. In chapter 10, the people seeing this happen begin to say among themselves, is Saul also among the prophets? In chapter 19, after Saul is stripped naked, laying on the dirt, prophesying, the people ask, is Saul also among the prophets? Here is the story of a king in rebellion against his God. A king who won't remove his own robe, his robe of authority an authority given to him in chapter 10. And now he comes before God 
and God himself strips him of his robes. God himself strips him of his authority. God himself strips him of his title so that he's left in the dirt mumbling prophecies. You see, this story about a man who's seeking to control his own outcomes to put down David, to make sure that his kingdom is protected, to make sure his authority and his throne and his honor is protected, to make sure that the women are singing about him as he goes through the villages, um, rather than singing about David, um, is actually simply a pawn operating in a plan, a story that God himself is telling about his own judgments. This is the end of Saul perfect story arc. God writes marvelous stories. So if that's what God is up to, can you imagine with me for a moment what's going on in David's mind? You were anointed king. Pretty good start. You're anointed king. Um, The spirit of God comes upon you, even better. You go to fight against Israel's enemies. You kill a giant. That's pretty good. People start to sing about you. The ladies start to sing about you. Single men. You ever find yourself in a position where single ladies are coming out of the villages and singing about you? That is a good sign about your eligibility as a bachelor. That's what happens. Things seem to be going quite well. And then it's not. And now all of a sudden the king that you're serving, that you're faithfully seeking to serve, is throwing spears at you when you play music. Uh, suddenly um, the, the king that you've sought to serve faithfully, the king um, that has been declared that you'll be the one um, that, that comes after him, you'll be the new king. He's sending people after you to kill you, to lie for you, to, mani- to, to lie to you, to manipulate you. Um, suddenly now you're fleeing from, for your life, um, not just from the palace, but also from your home, from your marriage bed. You're fleeing into the wilderness. Can you imagine with me for a moment what this is like for David? He doesn't see this story of judgment unfolding for Saul. All he sees is his life seems wrecked. Which, by the way, is exactly what will happen every time the Spirit of God comes. The Spirit of God will always lead us into trouble, even in the midst of our faithfulness. And then listen to the prayers of David from Psalm 59. This prayer was written right as all of this is happening. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie and wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. 
For no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, the Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, Laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. How does David respond to what looks like From the moment he receives the spirit of God, his life just spirals into trouble. It's the exact opposite direction of Saul. Saul doubles down on his sin, doubles down on his rebellion, refuses to repent, refuses to turn to God, refuses to plead with God for mercy. David here turns immediately to God and pleads with him for mercy, turns immediately to God and asks God to act on his behalf. So we see a story that God is telling. The story about a, man trapped in his hardened wickedness, who refuses to escape, who refuses to ask for mercy, who will, after this chapter, still remain on his throne, but his story is over. And we see a man pleading with God to save him, pleading with God to rescue him, um, who, though he will not be on a throne after this chapter, he will be sent into the wilderness that will become for him a throne. And here again is the story that God always loves to tell. Well, you can cling to your titles, you can cling to your power, you can cling to your authority. You can look at your life and it feels like a wilderness. All you can see is trouble. Oh, but be like David. And you will find yourself in the midst of a story wherein God is in fact establishing good for you, for his name, precisely in the wilderness. Three points of application to close. The first one is simply that. God is always surprising in his ways with his people but you should know and trust that his ways never fail. Your rebellions against him are doomed and your trust in him 
is sure. But looking at life, looking at this story, um, what we'll see moving into the next chapters is apparently still a King Saul. Apparently um, a Saul who's still um, chasing David all over the place. But at the heart of that story is the story of David himself stepping into his own royalty, stepping into his own authority, stepping into and receiving from the hand of God all of the gifts that he intends for him. And you will watch Saul's life unravel. God always gets his way, no matter what it happens to look like on the surface. And he very intentionally tells stories in such a way that that on the surface, you have no idea what's going on. And so the first point, trust God. In the face of trouble, trust God. In the face of the wilderness, trust God. God, in the face of cancer, trust God. In the face of chaos, trust God. In the face of oppression, trust God. In the face of difficulty, trust God. Cry out to him and learn to pray with David. Second, in an age of self-actualization, in an age that absolutely centers you and your story, The temptation is to read this story as though you're David and that guy over there is Saul. Every single commentary I read, (laughs) this was a story about how you and I are like David and how God will save you from Saul. The thing is, this text is actually mostly about Saul. It's actually a cautionary tale about the destructiveness of of, um, the the, the nature of God's judgment against Saul. And so I want want you to pause. There are glorious things to learn, um, hopefully, about your life as you look at David. But don't, don't shoot to that without first asking the question, how am I like Saul? Where do I cling to my rebellion? Where do I double down on my sin? Where do I um, hold my authority without recognizing the fact that I um, live and serve and exercise authority under the reign of God? So don't pass this story by thinking that you and David are clear analogies. Saul, Saul is more like that guy over there, that guy over there is trying to throw a spear at me. No, you and I are often Saul's. Last, the exaltation of the wilderness. The story that God tells over and over and over and over again. It's a story of calling his son into the wilderness and exalting him there. Story of the son of David, the story who, about the son of God, the story of Jesus. It is a story um, of Jesus who goes to the cross and on that cross is exalted and enthroned. 
He goes to the cross bearing the penalty for our sins. He goes to the cross so that you don't have to double down on your sins. You don't have to cling to them for the rest of your life. And, and what you discover in Jesus is the one who bears the penalty for our sin. And you think at just this moment, this moment of defeat, this moment of exile, this moment where he's been driven away from his home and driven away from the palace and driven away from the city. It's precisely here. That Jesus is lifted up and he draws all people to himself. Oh, don't miss the clues. Don't miss the echoes that run all throughout the Bible that tell you exactly who God is and what God is always up to. The great climax of this story is Jesus. The whole point of this story is to Jesus, the one who goes to the wilderness in our place, um, the, the one who is driven from his home in our place and precisely there is exalted so that you and I might be forgiven. Let's pray.